0: and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. I'm coming to you from Buenos Aires, as usual, and my guests today are Rohini Mohan and Rohit Chopra. And we are going to talk about Hindu Ethno-Nationalism and the Rise of the Hindu Far-Right. Rohit is Associate Professor of Media Studies at Santa Clara University. He runs a Twitter account India Explained. And he and his friend Bunty Bolter have their own podcast, the India Explained podcast. I'll put links to all of those things in the show notes. Rohit is the author of the book Hindu Nationalism in New Media. And Rohit is coming to you from um, San Francisco, in the heart of Silicon Valley. He teaches in the heart of Silicon Valley. And Rohini is an independent journalist writing on politics and human rights based in India. She is the author of The Seasons of Trouble, a non fiction account of post-war Sri Lanka. And Rohini is coming to you from Bangalore, the Silicon Valley of India. So we have a Silicon Valley theme going on here today. So I want to start by um, talking a little bit about the recent history of Hindu ethno-nationalism. So this is something that I would like to make readers outside of India more aware of, that there appears to be in India, I feel, a um, rising tide of right-wing identity politics, of Hindu identity politics, of, a ki- of an ethno-nationalist movement, which has become more mainstream with Narendra Modi's government. Could you maybe begin by telling me a little bit about, about how that has, how you see those recent developments, and you can define recent in, in any way you like.
1: Uh, sure, thanks very much, Ilana. You know, uh... So you're welcome. Uh, the first thing I would say is that uh, you know Hinduism, Hindu nationalism is is not equivalent to Hinduism. It's it's kind of stating the obvious. Um, it has its roots in really um, nineteenth century developments, and I think you use the term ethno nationalism, and that's absolutely spot on. I think the leading scholar of Hindu nationalism, Christopher Jaffrelot, describes it as. Being akin to uh, really European ethno-nationalist movements. Uh, that said, it it also draws, um, you know, from certain indigenous strands of uh, Puritanism and intolerance in Hinduism. And Hinduism is a long and complex history, um, and not all of it is necessarily positive. One fact that I just want to highlight in general is the, you know, that. Uh, There's a tendency amongst some commentators, well-intentioned, no doubt, to insist that Hindutva or Hindu nationalism is not real Hinduism, quote-unquote real, right? And this is, to me, a really problematic stand because uh, by this logic, you can, you know, Hinduism constantly gets let off the hook, right? Anything negative that anyone does in the name of Hinduism is, is kind of, you know, put in this Hindutva bracket and Hinduism remains unsullied and untouched. Uh, The analog is people insisting that, you know, uh, Muslim terrorism or ISIS have nothing to do with uh, Islam. Now, just as, uh, you know, what ISIS does doesn't exhaust Islam, what uh, the Hindu nationalists do don't exhaust Hinduism, but it is very much part and parcel of the landscape of Hinduism. Uh, The people who adhere to the ideology say that it is the, uh, for them it is, you know, in fact the essence of Hinduism. For them it's the authentic form of Hinduism they call themselves hindus they act as hindus so to say that it's not real hinduism ironically you know gets us into this uh, same situation of trying to define authentic hinduism which is exactly what the hindu nationalists claim about themselves you know and responding to your point about uh, the sort of rise i think there's been a general move towards the you know hindu nationalist ideology getting more legitimacy uh, for which largely the BJP and the Hindu right, but to an extent the Congress, too, is to blame. If I were to take a perspective of about, you know, 30, 40 odd years, uh, there have been these key moments like the Babri Masjid demolition, uh the Shabano case, in which a Muslim woman was denied sort of right to maintenance and the Congress gave in really to uh, hardline Muslim forces. Uh, and then uh, they... In a sense, enabled the rise of the right by throwing some sops correspondingly to the right. Uh, the last four years, however, I think have seen uh, you know this process accelerate, and uh, the country on the whole seems to have moved much more towards the right, cultural right, with the media being complicit in I think legitimizing Hindu nationalism. Uh, Modi has played a great part of it, and uh, you know the formidable sort of media apparatus that. Uh, the Modi government has the fact that, you know, it is engaging in a kind of monitoring and censorship. Uh, it is a vindictive, vicious government. All of this has played a role in it. Um, and we've seen a spike in attacks on Muslims, attacks on ballots, and a much more kind of strident, aggressive display of Hinduism in general and even of Hindutva in all kinds of ways.
0: I'd like to return to this. I'd like to return to the question of the BJP and um, Modi, but just as a little sort of, I think this might be a good way to begin with this difference between Hinduism and Hindutva and whether that really is a distinction that we should be making. Uh, so I have read um, Shashi Tharoor's book, Why I Am a Hindu, which is, uh, in. I don't know if you, I'm, I'm sure you've also read that, um, which is on the one hand, you could say that it is, what people like Tharoor are doing is um, trying to separate out Hindu belief and practice from Hindutva in order to give people a a, a sense of Hindu identity which is uncoupled from these um, from these very illiberal tendencies, illiberal and xenophobic and um, anti-Muslim um, tendencies. But on the other hand, uh, it could be seen as apologism. And I hear very similar criticisms of uh, Muslim reformers also, though I don't think Shashi is a, a reformer as such, that there is always a fine line to be drawn between do you want to redefine or do you want to condemn? Do you want to say, okay, that's not the Hinduism that I subscribe to, this is my Hinduism? Or do you want to say, okay, these things are actually so ingrained uh, within Hinduism that we can't, uh, we shouldn't cherry pick?
2: Yeah, I haven't read Sashitaru's book, but uh, on the point of whether we should differentiate between Hinduism and Hindutva, I think it matters. Uh, people make the differentiation uh, based on who they're around and who's asking the question. Uh, and I think a lot of, uh, I mean, in pe- regular people, and I think a lot of uh, us trying to draw those lines uh, should only see how it actually uh, shows itself, whether it's Hinduism or whether it's Hindutva. <clears throat> the, the, the strain which is aggressive, uh, hypermasculine, uh, and trying to homogenize uh, different practices, and in India, where it's Hinduism, uh, I wouldn't say only Hinduism. There would be people who are trying to speak for Hinduism and differentiate it from Hindutva, would say Hinduism is a way of life, and that, uh, you know, even Supreme Court judgments have called it that when it didn't know how to define it. Uh, and that there are different people, uh, pract- you know, it's a it's not a monotheistic religion and that there are different people with different practices across time but this is true of uh, all religions in in india and this differentiation is made when the person is trying to portray hinduism as a softer uh, you know kind religion that can that can bring, uh, bring under its fold everybody and the person when trying to define hindutva as an aggressive format to show that it is uh, w- would say the opposite I would I would say the difference is only in actual practice uh, that you, I, I agree with Rohit that uh, Hinduism includes all of these strains of uh, uh, you know, where there is a privileging in a lot of practices of upper caste practices, there is a privileging of certain uh, of, of uh, a certain kind of hierarchy and all of this exists uh, uh, and this is this seems, under certain political uh, dispensations, uh, more aggressive uh, and more violent. And I would say that that then, then tend towards Hindutva. A lot of people who are part of uh, the RSS, a lot of people who would uh, be attending you know, schools that teach certain practices of the Hinduism, Vedic schools, would not at all uh, have a problem saying that they are learning Hindutva. Uh, so it's about, you know, each person trying to answer it around who. Mm, thanks.
1: Yeah, I agree with Rohini. And I should say I haven't read the book either. Uh, but, you know, I say this, like I have read some other works by Shashi Tharoor and he's, uh, you know, obviously he's, he's enormously smart and he's, uh, you know, very articulate and uh, he's very prolific. As I, I always admire people who are that prolific, you know. I mean, it takes me much longer to write, to write books. He seems he seems to bring out about three books a year. It's extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, the the other person who comes to mind. I mean, he's sort of like Steve, the Stephen King of Indian politics. I, think <laughs> yes. <King>. I remember <laughs> Mad Magazine satirizing Stephen King by saying, you know, these are the eighteen books he wrote last summer. Uh, but I think you know he's also a politician and he's a politician. he's a Congress politician. I mean, if you look at his pronouncements, for instance, on the recent uh, Sabri Mala controversy, uh, you know and and he he and Rahul Gandhi both have sort of backtracked about uh, on their position about women being allowed to enter, uh, you know, saying that we need to take uh, devotee sentiments into account. And this is kind of the position the Congress has taken on, uh, you know, different religious communities. As well, so it's kind of followed a majoritarian patriarchal logic. Now, I,
0: th- I think it- I want to I want to dial all this back because my readers and my my listeners, well, the Ario magazine listener readers, um, this podcast is associated with the magazine, and my listeners are um, are not in India. Most of our uh, our listeners are in the U.S. and a smaller minority in the U.K. and. I think that we we shouldn't assume too much knowledge of Indian politics here. So I'd like to just take it back a couple of stages of complexity. Um, one thing that I um, hear from a lot of people when I talk about or when I allude to Hindu ethno-nationalism or some kind of militant Hinduism is how is ethno-nationalism or militancy even compatible with Hinduism because it's such a, um, in the the perceptions of people in the West, it's such a peaceable, hippie, um, capacious, non-dogmatic religion. So um, maybe we could start there. Uh, How has, do you feel that, um, so what kind of, how how are Hindutva using Hinduism or how are the Hindu far-right using Hinduism um, for their ends what kind of what kind of religion does it become in their hands and how?
1: So let me just respond to this whole question of uh, you know the public perception the I'd say the global perception of Hinduism first right
0: Yes uh, the great idea,
1: yeah the idea of Hinduism as as uh, tolerant uh, as uh, peaceful as a way of life these are all cliches really. Uh, Hinduism in its long history has been no more peaceful than any other religion. Uh, yes, it is a non-proselytizing religion. Um, and in that sense, the violence of Hinduism has not been linked to proselytization. But, uh, you know, the person who's actually commented on this very astutely is an Indian thinker called Ashish Nandi. And Ashish Nandi in turn quotes this eccentric figure called Nirat Choudhury. And I won't go into Nirat Choudhury's uh, background in much detail, except to say that he was this strange Anglophile Bengali who, you know, uh, moved to Britain at some point of time, uh, you know, wore a bowler hat, lived like a typical Englishman would. Uh, he was, you know, the, the object of much mockery, perhaps some of it deserved. Uh, wrote a number of books, many of which were tedious. But he had one very good insight, which is that he says that from the time of, uh, you know, uh, I'd say Ashoka onwards, uh, you actually have, uh, you know, violence, extreme violence is a very fundamental part of Indian society. And, uh, you know, whether it's Hindu kings, whether it's, you know, Buddhist kings as well, uh, they were every bit as violent as Muslim, the Muslim invaders. Uh, you know, who, uh, the Muslim, the two Muslim dynasties, both of which really started with invasions, were, were supposed to be. Now, the irony here is that the idea of Hinduism as peaceful comes in with Gandhi. But what Ashish Nandi says is that Gandhi took his notion of uh, Hinduism as peaceful from really a certain strand of Quaker Christianity. And it was a very strategic move by Gandhi where he knew that defining Hinduism as non-violent, combined with the idea of civil disobedience, which he adapted from uh, the American thinker and naturalist and philosopher Henry David Thoreau, would resonate perfectly with sections of the British population. So it was, and, you know, the American population as well. So it was a very, very smart and astute move in which you want to translate Hinduism into a pacifist frame where you will get support for your anti-colonial nationalist movement from people in Britain. Gandhi's project essentially was uh, to rob the British Empire of its claim to political legitimacy in India. And Mm. the fact that we have everyone thinks of Hinduism as as peaceful, as, as a kind of dominant characteristic of of the faith or the belief system or the way of life or whatever you want to call it, is really testament to how successful Gandhi's, Gandhi's project was. But, you know, if you look at India broadly, including Hinduism and other religions, our history has been very violent. And even today, as, uh, you know, Urvashi Bhutalia, who's uh, an oral historian and uh, the founder of a feminist publishing house, and she's done an a, br- a brilliant work on, on women survivors of, the sexual violence of partition called uh, The Other Side of Silence. She has a statement saying, scratch the surface anywhere and you find violence in India. So I think I'll leave it to that and maybe Rohini has some thoughts on this too.
2: Yeah, and and with the very uh, end of Gandhi comes another Hindu man who shoots him three times. Uh, He belonged, uh, Nathuram Godse, the man who assassinated Gandhi, belonged to the Hindu Mahasabha. So, um, you know, it sort of shows that and, and I completely agree with, with Rohit and he put it really well uh, that the violence has been, uh, you know, something that uh, whatever the the region of India has seen for so long. And it, uh, this, this thing of, um, I think some, one of the claims of why it is seen as Hindu apart from Gandhi is also that, you know, like other religions, it also has uh, conversations in a lot of its myths, a lot of its stories, a lot of its holy books that talk about peace and that talk about inner peace and that talk about seeing the seeing the universe and seeing your life as part of, you know, a very small part of a large time and space continuum sort of thing where you, uh, where none of this really, um, uh, and none of this really is about now. So it's, you know, all of these stories talk about um, uh, peace and violence in, in some sort of um i don't know in in very mythical ways uh but i think when it comes to actually uh you know hindu uh empires hindu kings i don't think at all that it is not a violent religion uh, i actually had a tough time when i when i reported in sri, sri lanka to convince uh, publications abroad outside of south asia uh to write to publish things in which i there were buddhist monks attacking muslims and uh, Tamil's who are Hindus, so it's uh, it's all a matter of perception. And Hinduism and Buddhism have done themselves uh, really good propaganda, which paints itself as you know uh, very peaceful, even while speaking some of the most toxic, violent language.
1: That's so interesting, Rohini. If I may just uh, you know uh, sort of interject for a second, I'm, I was just thinking of the fact that Buddhism also, especially in the West and especially in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, You know, you have people who are, you know, your archetypal Berkeley, San Francisco liberals, Uh, they will not hear a word about Buddhism in any way being related to violence. Um, You know, or the fact that the Dalai Lama has a kind of cult following here. Some years ago, he spoke at uh, uh, Santa Clara University. He was meant to speak at Stanford, but they didn't have space. So we co-organized the event. Uh, but, you know, you look at the Dalai Lama, he has, for instance, had very close links with the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, which is a right-wing uh, Hindu body that's accused of and that's guilty of, you know, massive acts of violence. Uh, he, again, in some ways, his some of his views on uh, Hinduism are problematic. Uh, you know, even when I was a graduate student at Emory University, they had a Tibetan studies program out there. And uh, to me, the in some ways, the complete lack of, uh, you know, any kind of critical reflection on uh, on on this, you know, historical Buddhist relationship to violence, especially in an academic setting, it was enormously, enormously troubling. Uh, it just attracted people who had this completely romantic idea about Buddhism being this, you know, peaceful sort of religion of meditation and and Zen and you know Nirvana and so on. And in some ways, that kind of echoes at least one of the ways in which uh, you know you see Hinduism. Uh, the sort of common, everyday, even stereotypical understanding of Hinduism, right? As in San Francisco, it's all about hate ashbury uh, saffron scarves, and it's about yoga.
0: Um, yes, especially yoga. I, I wanted to ask, actually, um, because um, I was also under the impression that, although, of course, you can be violent as a Buddhist, and you can have a Buddhist ethic, ethno-nationalist agenda so that's slightly different that is a um, an ethno-nationalist sort of ethnic supremacist agenda Um, so you believe Sri Lanka should be a Buddhist nation that is that kind of philosophy is potentially violent and of course has been actually violent Um, but I'm not sure that that is directly sanctioned or encouraged by the religious teachings in Buddhism, um, I I, yeah, okay. I studied um, so I studied Buddhism um, yeah. uh, in Sri Lanka for a year. I studied Theravada Buddhism, and um, mm. it's an extra. I find it an extraordinarily um, boring and frustrating <laughs> um, religion in many ways <laughs> um, because uh, so many of the teachings are paradoxes. Um, and possibly, in some cases, nonsense parading as wisdom, and possibly something deeply profound, but just very paradoxical and hard to grasp. But I don't recall any in actual incitements to violence in the same way as I see them very obviously in um, the Quran and in the Bible, and also in many of the Hindu uh, legends.
2: I mean, it's a, it's a whole other conversation to have, yes. of course, but um, I think a lot of analysis. When I was trying to understand where this is coming from, and it helps me understand the context of India as well now, and um, and as a as someone who was raised as a Hindu, to see where the kind of um, uh, uh, RSSs that I grew up hearing about uh, fit into, because I grew up hearing about the RSS, which is the rashtra Swayamse Vaksang, which is the part of sort of, sort of the it, ideological uh, parent of the BJP. And uh, it is the kind of, I just thought people just woke up early and did yoga and wore very ugly uh, khaki shots. Uh, and, you know, and had am I, I, I tended to see a Brahminical sort of uh, bent to it, but I didn't see everything that I see now as a reporter. Uh, so it's also about, you know, uh, of course, uh, what a grandfather teaches his granddaughter is going to be very different from what uh, a political figure does. So in the understanding of even Buddhism, uh, I think it will help us understand this. There was this idea of Protestant Buddhism, which came about in Sri Lanka, right? They mm-hmm. called it, I mean, it was, it's like, they, yeah, so it's where you have uh, one string that believes in community service and one strain that believes in uh, detachment, uh, as both ways of going towards, you know, nirvana or whatever, so or uh, salvation. So the the community service is the uh, is the is the group of people in, in under Theravada that uh, also give themselves quite easily to political mobilization. And by this I don't mean they are um, naive. By this I mean that they see part of their community service uh, as uh, it easily extends to political action uh, when, uh, you know, over time, it can be seen as the only the, on, the only way to do it. Um, and this is the same as the origins of the RSS, which is it is a volunteer service that's in its very name. Uh, and they have done, uh, its members have done a, a lot of work in disaster areas, uh, disaster hit areas like the earthquake in Gujarat and Bhuj. Uh, and that, I mean, that I know in my lifetime they have done. They do a lot of blood donation services. And just this very morning, someone was telling me that that's all they thought the RSS was. Um, and this came from a kind of a religious zeal to do public service. Uh, and from from this also comes a mobilization. And this is easily um, something that can become political uh, in the ri- under the right. Right. Climate. They're
0: like a kind of army cadet group. Uh, in some ways. So they have these, um, the Hindu right have these training camps. Um, I think we, I, I mean, many of us have seen the footage of these terrifying looking camps with the saffron flags flying. I've actually seen the entrance to one in real life. Although, as soon as I saw that this is what it was, I um, went quickly in the opposite direction um, where people are being basically trained as a, um, as a kind of um, quasi military corps, so it's a, it's rather like a terrorist training camp.
1: Uh, yeah, I you know it's I mean the irony here for me is that uh, you know just to first talk about uh, and to uh, to respond to what you said, Yona and what Rohini also mentioned that uh, uh, you know when you look at the structure of ethno-nationalist movements or fundamentalist movements, they all have something in common, right? So. Uh the Hindu right, whether it's the RSS or other groups, uh one of their pet themes is um and you know really one of the, the bases on which they attack minorities, uh particularly Muslims and Christians, is that Muslims and Christians are out to you know convert Indians, convert Hindus uh to uh, to Islam and uh, Christianity respectively. But the RSS itself has a very similar kind of you know missionary zeal, really. I mean, what else would we call it? Uh, so, in this respect, you know whether it's uh, you know Sri Lankan Buddhist eth- ethno nationalism or the RSS uh, or you know even the ISIS or others who you know have this sort of bizarre dream of reestablishing a caliphate. These are all very profoundly modern movements. Now, uh responding to your original point, you I yeah, I think it's a, it's it's a it's your uh, you know I'm no expert on on Buddhism, but I think it's absolutely right that. Uh, the relationship between scripture and practice, I think, is different in each case. I mean, Islam has a particular relationship. Um, Hinduism, it's it you know that, that relationship is it takes a different form, and um, you know with Buddhism it takes a different form. Uh, but I'll just quote a teacher of mine. I, I you know my dissertation was was again actually on the Hindu right online, but while I was a graduate student at Emory, I had the privilege of working on a number of projects on religion and human rights, especially Islam and human rights. Um, at the Emory Law School with the professor uh, Abdullah Yannai, he's written a book on uh, for, toward an Islamic Reformation, uh, and he was also director of Human Rights Watch Africa, and uh, you know he's one of uh, the few people who I feel is has been you know uh, very uh, sort of critical of problematic aspects of Islam without in any way being an apologist, which is something I find many other commentators do. And he made a very interesting remark once, which to me is, uh, he said, you know, Islam is Is what Muslims do or fail to do. And to me, whether it's Hinduism, whether it's Buddhism, ultimately that's what it comes down to. So, uh, you know, in the case of Hinduism, yes, you find, you know, you will find your neighborhood uncle who's, uh, you know, who's very nice to you because, uh, you know, you are from the same caste and class, or he just assumes that you are quote-unquote upper caste. And, uh, you know, he may be a perfectly sort of nice person and go out of his way and help you, uh, but the same family is also practicing a kind of, you know, banal untouchability. If it's not an outright, you know, uh, caste casteism, as you do find, for instance, in, in you know, some parts uh, of India, uh, you know, you still have these very sort of troubling practices where uh, someone who's working in a capacity as, you know, uh, your driver or your domestic help, uh, you know, there's a separate set of plates for them to eat from, and so on, and and you know this is these are all notions of purity and untouchability and so on which have kind of permeated everyday life so the question is that you know to me that also is a form of violence because it's you know you have physical violence but you have structural violence and structural inclusion and then you have these symbolic acts of violence and humiliation where you know the lady who comes your domestic help she will not sit on your sofa for instance uh, so all of that is part of the canvas of you know Hinduism and that's what kind of makes it violent and again Uh, you know, I don't think there's anything in Hindu scripture which talks about sofas in particular, and I'm just being partly facetious. Mm, So to mm. me, uh, (laughs) uh, Theravada Buddhism, your point is very well taken, but it's very interesting that scripturally there's no basis for violence. And and in that sense, uh, you know, in that sense, perhaps if there is to be a reform movement where this ethno-nationalism is to be countered, uh, the absence of a scriptural basis for violence is one less obstacle. Mm, um mm. and in the case of Islam I think we come back to that so to me it's very frustrating for instance when you know a number of people who claim to be experts in the Quran they keep denying these passages which are right there about you know passages that justify women being beaten uh, right like, right to be, you know the passages about infidels passages about polytheists being in you know whatever being infidels I and mean, they keep insisting you know such a tired cliche. Uh, Islam is a religion of peace. This is as much of a cliche as Hinduism. As yes,
0: religion religion. That's, ri- that's ridiculous. But I want to come back to um, Hinduism for a moment and the caste system because uh, so one, um, I think it's a misconception, so I'm interested to see what you two think. That I come across a lot is that there wasn't really a fixed caste system before the British arrived that um, the caste system was really just about um, people's traditional hereditary professions. But in fact, you could move very freely between castes and that the caste system became solidified and in particular, untouchability, which is the most of all the various horrific parts of the caste system. And I do think casteism is one of the most um ridiculous nonsensical and also just evil ideas to have been conceived Um, but untouchability being the worst part of this so i hear often that this was that it was because of the british that this um became so ingrained in indian society and i believe that dna evidence has um definitively disproven this idea so we can see that um DNA evidence suggests that the caste system, caste divisions began around 2,000 years ago. So they are not ancient, strictly speaking, um, when you trace the molecular uh, clock back. Sorry, Rohini, you were going to say something?
2: No, I was asking what DNA evidence has to
0: do with this. Um, oh, because you can, you can uh, see whether groups have intermarried in the past or not. So if you see a very... When you look at uh let's see if I can I can describe this well. I talked to Razib Khan about this also on the podcast that I did with Razib, which was uh where we talked about the genetic history of India. So if you look at um the DNA history of most regions, um what you see is that um geographically people who were close Closely located geographically, have more similarities genetically, and people who lived further away have fewer similarities. So that's what you would expect. People are more likely to marry and have children with people who live close by than people who live further away. So, but the genet—if you look at the genetics uh, of India, um, what you see is you see that pattern, the kind of pattern you would expect. Up until about 2000 years ago. And from 2000 years onwards, what you see is that people are um, genetically similar depending on their caste. So, what you have is caste groups who have not intermarried or interbred for a couple of millennia. I think uh, Razib said, with the exception of some areas in Bengal, and it's not entirely clear why, but uh, in India as a whole, this is the pattern that you see, and it's basically uh, it's pretty irrefutable evidence for a fixed caste system that is quite old, but not ancient.
2: The DNA testing that you mentioned, it's, I think it says I'm I'm looking at it now. I hadn't read it before. It said it says that uh, genetic mixing ended 1,900 years ago. At the mm. same time, the caste system was being codified in religious texts. One of them is Manuswriti, which forbade intermarriage between castes. So that still goes back longer than than when British Empire came, the East India Company came to India. So it is older; it is it is much older. And uh, even if uh, one looked at uh, you know reformists at that time, social reformers. Uh, you, if you looked at um, people just, you know, people, the songs that were written very long ago um, uh, and, you know, a lot of texts written then, stuff written on temple walls, uh, a lot of this uh, does mention certain things that allude to caste. Um, certain practices go back a long time. I uh, i am not sure the, the, the format form in which untouchability was practiced uh, may differ over time. Uh, But there were, I mean, there are uh, Dalit historians who have written about, uh, you know, like music, food, all of that bearing experiences of caste differentiation and hierarchy that goes back very long time ago. And, you know, what you mentioned about people uh, describing it as something for uh, like a division of labor is quite similar to people talking about, you know women uh, not being allowed into temples or not being allowed into kitchens when they are on their period as something to just give them a bit of rest for a few days. These are uh, sort of just justifications trying to mold it as logic or rationale uh, when in, when in fact it is these are notions of purity and impurity which are deeply coded in 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 Hinduism uh, and in the ways it was uh, practiced. The warring between different groups of Hindus is different. There were, there were Shaivites and Vaishnavites before under different gods. Uh, and then maybe the format in which we recognize caste now came after. But I think this kind of timeline, Rohit, would be better to talk about. But it is definitely not anything to do with, you know, uh, some, of the, some of the ways in which it was codified may, uh, may have the hand of, of uh, the East India Company and the British, British Raj. Uh, but I think in terms of actual lived experience, it goes back much longer.
1: It's, you know, thanks, Rohini, and I, I agree with much of what Rohini is saying. I think it's a very complex question, and I think the, uh, I'll start by just looking at a few definitions. So there's one sense of caste, which is the fourfold you know hierarchy of, uh, you know, the Brahmin being the head of, you know, the figure of, like, the lawgiver or the, uh, in in you know, the or sort of primordial man, as it were, in um, in Hindu, uh, you know, mythology if you want to call it that. The uh, Kshatriya being, you know, the hands or uh, the merchant class being the thighs, and I think then the Shudras being the feet, and then the Dalits or the term, uh, Dalit is an anachronistic term in that sense, but those who are beneath the caste system being uh, untouchable, then, you know, we associate caste with a set of practices of exclusion and violence. And then uh, the scholar Partha Chatterjee says that caste also stands in a sense as an Indian equivalent of community. And uh, there's a word for it called jati, right? So uh, when you have different castes with these, you know, very sort of strictly defined rules of, uh, you know, which subcaste of Punjabi Khatris can marry into which other subcaste, it's functioning as a notion of community. Uh, so caste, as I see it, is a social fact. The role of biology in that social fact is, uh, you know, again, a complex question and it's. I think it leads into a much kind of broader discussion. Uh, to me, I would, you know, defer to the authority of historians on this without discounting uh, the value or the contribution that, you know, geneticists and others make. Uh, so I think the difficulty here is really the question of lack of empirical evidence. Now, we know, for instance, that You know, casteist practice, there's some evidence to show that they go back, you know, a a decent amount of time.
0: Can I interject for a moment because I don't want to give the wrong impression because you talked about biological differences. So what geneticists trace when they um, are tracing this is drift in mostly non-coding characteristics. So those are parts of DNA that have no known or uh, effect on the phenotype. Right. And uh, therefore, they can mutate at a at a faster rate, right. without uh, uh, without causing the fetus to become unviable. Right. So they act as markers to allow us to trace the relationships between people. I'm not suggesting that uh, somehow Indians have speciated. Um,
1: okay. Yes, yes, yes. I, yeah. I, just, I understand just, that. just to be yeah.
0: totally clear about that.
1: Yeah. No, and the question—the question for me is that, in as much as this represents some, you know, sort of uh, imperative towards homogeneity or some strict, you know, rules of marrying, uh, what is the relationship of casteist violence to that? Again, is not clear to me. Now, you know, caste is also a stereotype about India, and I have to say that I am sympathetic to people who get frustrated when they're asked, "What about the caste system?" And my response to Americans is, "It functions as kind of analogous to." Uh, you know, slavery, the way I see it. It's a reality, it's a social fact. Uh, you know, there has been, you know, change, but its legacies sort of continue to haunt us and continue to haunt the presence. Now, at what point of time casteism as discrimination starts is, I think, a complex issue. I think, uh, you know, there is a case to be made that, as you and Rohini also mentioned, that some of these practices of, uh, you know, caste got codified during the colonial era, we know, we know that the codification of uh, of so-called personal rights or family rights or religious rights in the colonial era actually, in some instances, did lead to a kind of diminution of women's rights. And, uh, you know, Flavia Agnes and Jan Ki are two scholars who've argued this. We know that religious identities, you know, which were combined with other aspects of identities did become more fossilized and codified when the British introduced the census. And the primary marker of identity essentially became uh, your religious identity. And there was, you know, a very interesting debate about this between uh, Indian, Indian origin historians and uh, historians from, you know, Oxbridge uh, about uh, what is called the prehistory of communalism and interestingly you know the british historians in some ways wanted to argue that hindus and muslims particularly had been at each other's throats you know uh, since uh, since ancient times uh because in some ways that kind of absolves uh, you know the british for the question of violence uh now there's a couple of questions raised here which is that uh one regardless of whether this is introduced by the british or not you know or who who should be held responsible for it? Uh, Is it the case that, you know, we are saying that Indians have no agency and regardless of whatever mechanisms the British introduced, Hindu society should have reformed on its own anyways? Uh, Or are we saying that, you know, the structure introduced by the British or the changes introduced by the British were such that they kind of entrenched and exacerbated inequalities that already existed? So that's, again, an open-ended question. What I will mention, though, is that, you know, as any social fact, caste relations cannot have been fixed for such a long period of time. We know that there is a thesis called kshatriya which means that over a period of time, there were certain castes that as they became more powerful, they may have been subaltern, but they essentially, uh, you know, used this power to claim that they were part of warrior castes. And they invented these origin myths for themselves, you know, whether they descended from the sun or moon. Uh, We know that that with the Marathas, a warrior caste in Maharashtra, uh, you know, politically dominant caste, we know that this is the history of the Maratha caste, that it was a subaltern caste, which then has claimed kind of warrior status for it. And the Indian sociologist M.N. Srinivas has done a lot of work on this. Uh, Now, you know, what does this does this mean that there was uh, no casteism? No, not at all, right? And there are, you know, there's cultural memories in Dalit groups. There's historical memories which go back, I think, fairly far, uh, far, far back. Um, and I think a lot of work needs to be kind of done on that still. Uh, it's also the case that many Dalit scholars will actually make these claims about a kind of straightforward narrative and line and history of oppression going back thousands of years. And historically, some of those claims are problematic. It's, you know, a kind of essentialist history in its own way, whether it's Pancha Nilaya or others, um, Pancha sorry, or others. It's, it's sort of the equivalent of Afrocentrism, which, you know, as a kind of historical, uh, or historiographical argument tends to be, I think, very problematic. What the Hindu right has done, though, to me, which is very troubling, uh, it's part of a pattern. Uh, You know, this argument was actually introduced by a scholar called Nicholas Dirks. He's the former, he was at Michigan, and then he's the ex-vice chancellor of UC Berkeley. Uh, He's a historical anthropologist, and he wrote a book called Castes of Mind. And he was talking about, you know, some of these ways in which the logic of really colonial governmentality, uh, you know, is drawing on the work of Foucault, and he's really showing that, you know, how these new kind of categories in some ways led to a hardening of uh, caste identities. What the Hindu right has done is it's taken these arguments in a very half-baked way, in the way that you know, they'll borrow terms from social theory like symbolic violence or they'll take the work of Edward Said uh, and they will basically claim that upper caste Hindus have somehow been the victims of a kind of colonial conspiracy uh, in the realm of knowledge and they will turn this around on its head and say that Hindus, especially Brahmins are, are the ones who have been, you know, victims of uh, violence at the hands of, you know, Muslims uh, or even Dalits. So I think there's a lot really going on here, which, you know, kind of needs to be uh, needs to be unpacked. I mean, certainly, uh, yes, to deny that caste exists, exists sorry, caste as casteism has existed, to blame casteism uh, entirely on British colonial rule is, you know, I, I mean, it's I don't think it's warranted. There is no basis for that. Uh, but the fact that, you know, colonialism was such a rupture, such a new logic of governance, new categories, new forms of violence, that uh, it's inconceivable that caste relations would not have been impacted significantly by it.
2: Rohini, did you want to add anything? I know that's, I mean, I was fascinated by listening to a lot of that. And I, agree with the, I mean, especially the stuff he said at the end uh, about some of that, uh, some of those, uh, some of those analysis of how caste operates is just being used in essential ways now uh, by all all different kinds of groups. That um, you know, some of these things were coming to my mind about you know people claiming um, a kind of history uh, much more uh, to to legitimise some of their claims to power, whether it is within a small community or whether it is you know kind of political power. In, in electoral processes, it's, it's it's really interesting because you have you kind of reframe what you meant in in history.
0: I've certainly heard just anecdotally stories from people who I met in India, who are I mean not very old people, people in their thirties and and even a little bit younger who were still impacted by caste things when they were growing up. So, for example, a friend of mine who uh, had to have his snack in the break separately from the other kids and another friend who says that she the brahmin family who lived next door didn't want her to be out playing on the balcony whilst uh whilst the father was praying because her shadow might pollute him while he was at his prayers so you know these are both people from um well, one friend who is a dalit and the other uh, who is a, a tribal um from a group who have a, who don't have a caste system, and so because they have no caste, she is assumed to be uh, a Dalit. That's the assumption that's made. So, I, I think there, there seem to be still some vestiges of this, and of course there have also been isolated crimes. I think just last year, someone was, a Dalit guy was killed for riding a horse. Because uh, Dalits are not permitted to ride horses in his village. Um, also, there have been several quite gruesome murders in Tamil Nadu of uh, Dalit men who married upper caste women. so
2: it's, it's clearly still something that is
0: impacting people.
2: So I, I did some uh, some writing on the in, uh, kind of intercaste marriages in South India, especially Tamil Nadu and the attack on couples for that there are parallel processes of this happening across the country especially uh, in in north india in haryana in uttar pradesh uh, and there are different groups uh, incensed over different combinations where sometimes it's a, it's about people marrying hin- hindus and muslims uh, uh, so Hindus and Christians uh, in in Kerala uh, to not that extent, but there is some there has been some violence around that. And in Tamil Nadu, it's uh, between Dalits and um, and you know kind of middle middle caste or upper caste uh, women. Uh, and it's something that as I was reporting, and as you know, a lot of people have po- pointed out. The combination of the couple that most, in sense, most annoys and angers, uh, you know, far right groups and casteist groups uh, is when the man is a Dalit and the and the woman is from a middle or upper caste. Uh, I'm saying middle or upper in kind of they they claim uh, upper caste identity uh, on paper. They could be according to India's different uh, scheduling of these castes. They could be. Uh, other backward castes, or they could be even backward caste. Um and many of these are uh, farm, are peasant communities, farm, farmland owning communities. Uh, while the Dalit uh, communities often hold very small plots of land, plots of land, or not, not at all, and they used to work in these farms. Uh, so although some of these groups have, are not doing any farming anymore, or you know Dalits have moved out of the Farm sector, and maybe some of these are studying. Um, you know, an example I found was uh, like in, a, in 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 colleges where more young women from upper castes and from from these farm farming communities were going to college, uh, and many of them were along were studying alongside Dalit boys. Uh, I don't think this. Some of the women I spoke to didn't find that there were that many Dalit girls in college. Uh, So there's lots of different kinds of shifts happening. And many of these uh, couples that saw violence and so many of them are in hiding. Many have lost, have been both been killed. Uh, Often the target is the Dalit man. Mm. Yes. And this, and and there there is a sort of ownership because of land transfer. There are are lots of analysis of this, Um, you know, religiously it is seen, um, you know, as you know, you're just marrying down one. Uh, Secondly, uh, the 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 woman uh, is making a choice as an educated person. Although because of their status going up, they want to access education. Uh, they have, also they can afford to send girls to education now, uh, girls to college now or school. And many of these women are making have lived very privileged lives, and they make these choices uh, on their own. But that is when. Uh, many of the other kind of strictures come, uh, many of the other restrictions come into play in very violent forms. And a lot of these, uh, one one woman, I said, and I, I'm not saying that she represents lots of their voices, but it's really struck me, a woman that I interviewed who was uh, whose uh, husband, uh, who she ran away to marry, she eloped, and that's the only way a lot of them marry. Uh, her her uh, husband was found dead uh, on a train track. And uh, it's quite clear, from you know all the evidence that he he was murdered and it may have even involved uh, her family uh, and also uh, it just before that her father had committed suicide because she married this boy so this is a, in tragic circumstances i met her and i asked her why uh, you know i mean just asked her like in in this kind of milieu how did you even think of marrying a dalit man and she said um, that that uh, our guys, so she said it in Tamil, she said, which is like, they are, they're, they're, they're lost in a, uh, the men of my caste are lost in a caste frenzy and there is no way I can even imagine being married to any of them. Uh, most of them are also not in college because they have land and they would just, they would work on their land. Mm. This is, this was her reply. Uh, and I think that there is, there are all these different shifts happening uh, in, in lots of different castes and among the youth people, uh, there are some people expressing a, way, a need to shed their caste background. Uh, it could be just she 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 could have caste expression in many other ways, but in marriage she didn't want to. Uh, while even even the Dalit boy is also, Dalit men are also seeing it as ways where you, you're just trying to see yourself as an equal. You're also trying to express your desire, aspiration to move up uh, the caste hierarchy. Uh, and lots of different personal reasons for people to make these choices are in in a context of uh, strengthening uh, and hardening caste lines. Yes, well, this
0: comes in the context of um, marriage traditions in India in general, and what always surprises people in the West is how many Indians are in arranged marriages. So I would say that of my Indian friends, almost all of those who are married had arranged marriages, almost all, including Indians who are outside in the West. And there was a recent survey done, and the statistic was that 95% of Indians uh, have arranged marriages, or I think over 95% uh, have arranged marriages. So that is also something that is perpetuating um, this system. Arranged marriages are going to be marriages to people of the same caste, etc.
2: I think a lot of people also choose when they choosing their own partners. It's not it's not necessary that they will will choose outside. Mm. Um, there are um, you know that's those are ways in which like what um, call you know many people call stru- structural violence. Uh, there are these. Uh, you may think it's absolutely you know when people describe caste as community as it is the way they see it. Uh, just a comfortable thing to do. Uh, an easy uh, mixing of people who know where they come from, speak the same language sometimes. That's not necessary, but uh, speak the same language, are used to the same kinds of uh, practices and habits in the house, same kind of food habits. Uh, so urbanization changes some of this. But uh, I do think that uh, people, it's not, it doesn't, it, it arranged marriages were one way to keep it, Uh, Keep people marrying within the same caste. But uh, I think there's also people who are making their own choices who are sticking to these caste lines.
1: To add to what, uh, you know, Rohini has said, I'll I'll just uh, talk broadly about. Yeah, I think, you know, I think, you know, when you say vestigial, I think you maybe understate the case because I think casteism is pervasive. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what the situation is like now, but, you know, when I was growing up in India, uh, you know, on the one hand, in, you know, urban, middle class, uh, relatively privileged uh, circumstances, when you, you know, look at one's life in the context of uh, you know, the majority of Indians, uh, you know, they, they on the one hand, there was a kind of self-congratulation that uh, particularly people from the urban, educated middle classes who are quote-unquote upper caste had, that, oh, you know, we are not casteists at all, people's identities don't matter to us. But then, along with that, there was a complete, you know, banal casteism. Just the ways, the kind of mocking of people who are, you know, from these categories called the scheduled castes and the scheduled tribes, for whom there's reservation. There were lots of grouses about how, you know, the twenty-seven percent reservation uh for, um, you know, totally, I think it's twenty-two and a half and seven or whatever thirty odd percent reservation uh, for people from these uh, particular groups would. You know, take away seats that rightfully belong to meritorious upper castes and so on. uh, And a lot of tasteless jokes. And these, you know, would happen in social settings, family settings, um, you know, among people who would claim to be, you know, liberal, progressive, enlightened generally and wanted India to develop and catch up with the West and, you know, would complain about corruption and so on without any lack of reflexivity. Uh, you know, J.M. Coetzee once made a very interesting remark. He said that uh, after the fall of apartheid, it's impossible to find a white South African who was ever guilty of, uh, you know, even, you know, even uttering anything racist against a black South African. And I think we find this with a lot of Indians now. And I particularly see it with a lot of Indians who, uh, you know, have come to the U.S., where, uh, you know, you're in the position of a minority. Uh, the social costs the political costs of, uh, you know, being openly discriminatory are much higher. Uh, for instance, you might, you know, lose your job uh, if you make a racist or a sexist remark in the workplace uh, in a way that those, you know, costs don't occur in India. So suddenly that sensibility is, you know, retro- retroactive, retrospectively, retroactively sort of applied to their past in India. Uh, And the justification is that, uh, you know, at that point of time, well, everyone in India used to talk like that. And that's not true, right? There's always a choice. Um, And in even these acts of sort of, uh, you know, physical violence and barbarity, I think they've been, you know, fairly routine. Uh, Maybe it's the fact that we, you know, now have a post-1991 liberalized uh, Indian media landscape when you've had this profusion of television channels after the Indian economy liberalized. Uh, when you, you know, and now in the era of social media, we get, uh, you know, much more information about it. So a kind of violence that's always existed uh, maybe is becoming more visible. Uh, a second uh, point is, as Rohini said, that there are many shifts happening and, and, you know, the sort of complexity, I think, of what happens in India is really mind-boggling. Uh, we are also at a moment of great social churn. So a lot of subaltern castes are kind of asserting themselves a few years ago the indian magazine outlook had a very fascinating article about uh, you know a lot of dalit uh, 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 self made dalit millionaires uh, upward mobility among dalits in punjab and how there's a whole strand of dalit music where you know material possessions become a very very important uh, and powerful symbol of dalit assertion and the dalits have also taken taken back terms like the word chamar which was you know, which referred to the traditional occupation of someone who tanned leather. It was an occupation frowned upon for people of, you know, sort of quote-unquote pure caste or whatever. Uh, and it's a term that's been used as a term of abuse. But there was a song called Jamar uh, Hammer," And the hammer is, you know, the, the American vehicle popularized. The Humvee, which was popularized by Arnold Schwarzenegger mm. commercial. <laughs> so you have this, you know, just as words like queer and black were taken back by these groups in in, in in the Western context, you had this term being reclaimed. So I think as we see more assertion, we are also going to see more of a pushback and violence. But uh, you know, there is this, I mean, great term. And you know, on the question of arranged marriage, I'm, uh, you know, I, I agree with Rohini. I'm going to just also say that I sometimes, in the West, particularly. Uh, do get a little uh, peeved when people sort of obsess about arranged marriage because, uh, you know, as my friend Banti Molka and who's the co-founder and, you know, my uh, co-podcast host on the India Explained podcast, you know, once mentioned, he said that, look, even, you know, he's lived he's lived abroad a long time. Both of us have lived in the West now, 20-some years. Uh, he's lived in the UK. I've been in the US. And he said that, you know, a lot of marriages in the UK also, they don't have these categories of love marriage and arranged marriage. But he said they are also de facto arranged marriages because you are meeting people within your own class, often within your own racial group, uh, so to speak. And, you know, there is some kind of social connection where through which you know each other.
0: Mm, I think that's a very weird way of looking at it. Of course, I mean, you are more likely to meet certain types of people depending on what your hobbies are, your interests, um, who you choose to Meet if you do online dating on OKCupid, you know, the kind of dating that people are increasingly doing nowadays, um, or also if you meet people through work or through university or whatever it might be. But it's not an arranged, um, it's not a arranged. Um, that, that is just the normal thing, which is people who are in closer proximity to you, um, you're you're not. You're not going to meet. You're not going to marry someone unless you first meet them.
1: Sure. So there is that element of you know choice there. But the question again is the range of choice always. Well, right?
0: your range. So of, you, I mean, your range of choice um, obviously is limited geographically. But that's. I mean, it would be odd to say. Well, I'm more likely to marry in Argentine because I live in Argentina and therefore it's an arranged marriage. That's. A really, really strange and uh, way of looking at it.
2: I think. I think another comparison could be actually uh, like meeting someone in church when your when your mother or your aunties are looking around to see uh, and or asking around if someone matches and you you go to church to meet meet a girl or meet a boy. Uh, it's actually more similar to that. I mean, it's not. It's not just proximity. Yes, beach,
0: and it's, that it's, wouldn't. It's, that um, would almost it, almost so never think, happen here, um, and people. And not that many people go to church to begin with, but also, uh, you know, people don't want, don't ask their mothers and aunties to look for somebody for them. And in fact, I think one way to guarantee that you will not date a person is for your mother to recommend you date them.
1: Right, right. I think, you know, I think though the role of the mother and the auntie, I mean, to some extent, you know, Hindi cinema and I think, you know, diasporic writers like, you know, who trade in stereotypes like, you know, Bharti Mukherjee and so on, in, in my view, um, you know, or second generation Indians who, you know, go on and on about arranged marriage and caste marriage. I think that, you know, the the role of that auntie figure may have, you know, been, been somewhat kind of, uh, you know, overstated. Uh, for me, the question is, I'll just give you an example. And I don't know about Argentina because, you know, I, I have no sort of sense of, uh, what the, uh, you know, the sort of social complexities and, and particularities of that society are. But, uh, you know, having spent a good deal of time in the American South and now and then, you know, a decade in, in the in the liberal West. Uh, I was in Atlanta where I did my PhD at Emory University, which is a sort of you can think of it as kind of a liberal space or enclave in a, in a conservative state. Uh, the people who married each other were com- you know, complete homogeneity. You had Southern, you know, Republicans uh, Catholics married Catholics, you had you know Baptists marrying Baptists, you had uh, evangelicals marrying evangelicals out of, you know, a lot of people we know who in and around the time of graduate school got married. And uh, in San Francisco as well, you see granola, you know, to, to sort of, uh, uh, you know, run a little bit stereotypes, Birkenstock wearing granola, eating liberals, marrying the same. Now, of course, yes, you do have had, you've had this tradition of arranged marriage, but but I think we are actually seeing again. To 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 go back to the point that Roini made about shifts, uh, it has absolutely the structures of marriage and the authority of uh, elders in the family have been, you know, in part ways in which, uh, you know, I say I'd say caste boundaries have been policed and maintained. But I think one of the big shifts we are seeing in India is exactly this, you know, business of uh, people now now younger people increasingly saying that they want to choose their own partners, they want to date. And this is uh, to me interestingly not just an urban phenomenon uh, or something restricted to the metros or the you know even the, the second tier cities uh, uh, we had a talk by Kavita Srivastava, who's the secretary of the people's Union of Civil Liberties, and she was saying that this is you know something that you see happening now in in uh, smaller towns uh, perhaps even in the villages. so I, I just would not without denying that there is something called, you know that the the there is a reality of arranged marriage exactly along the lines that you mentioned uh, you know I would I you know I'd be a little cautious about it's uh you know it's 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 it's, continu- its continuing importance I'd say as a factor in in uh, in Indian life right now
0: uh we haven't talked yet about Modi and Modi's government and uh,
2: he did have an arranged marriage and and that didn't work out so well for him
0: and I would like to hear about uh, Modi's history personal history as a politician. I mean, I I know this history, but this is for the benefit of listeners and connections with the far right. And also, um, I would love you to give us some commentary on Yogi Adityanath and what's been happening up in Uttar Pradesh.
1: All right. Well, you know, Modi's this interesting figure. He's in many ways a kind of uh, classic RSS figure. So the RSS and Hindu right and the BJP are... Uh, what are called carter based organizations. Uh, one of the great ironies of Indian political life, and there are many ironies, is that internally the BJP has been, you know, till recently more uh, democratic than the Congress. And I would say that, you know, whether it's a party like the RSS, uh, whether it's an organization like the RSS or the BJP, they've also been more disciplined uh, than, you know, the uh, than the Congress. Now, Modi was a foot soldier in, in the RSS, and uh, by all accounts he was a very dedicated person he's a certain kind of figure i think you can find in every tradition uh, the zealot uh, someone who has a fairly narrow you know view of uh, uh, of the world but someone who at least earlier was uh, you know puritanical lived in an austere way in fact modi was so devoted uh, to the task of the party that uh, you know he lived in a I think he just uh, lived in a room that was next to the, you know, RSS or BJP, RSS headquarters in Gujarat. Uh, So that, you know, there's been a lot of myth-making around Modi post and starting a little before 2014. Much of it, I think, is just based on sheer lies. But this fact, I think, is true. Um, A couple of points, he was, you know, uh, essentially became a kind of pariah when uh, in the aftermath of the, uh, 2002 uh, attack on a on, uh, number of uh, right-wing Hindus who were set ablaze in a, in a train in Godra, which is a train station in Gujarat, 58 of these so-called kar sevaks, or uh, devotees, uh, who wanted to build a temple at the site of a mosque uh, in Ayodhya, which has been you know, the source of controversy for over a century. When they were set alight, and uh, it was the the crime was initially blamed on Muslims. And since then, so this was. I'll uh, just
0: interject and say this is the Babri Masjid. Um, so this is
1: yes, ninety two, ninety three is when the Babri ninety two December sixth, nineteen ninety two is when the Babri Masjid was destroyed by hordes of Hindu nationalists.
0: So claim that it. They claim that the mosque was built over a temple that marked the birthplace of Lord Ram, right? That's there.
1: Exactly, exactly. And the case has been going on forever. I mean, there's going to be some, you know, uh, judgment soon again. And since then, different groups of, you know, Hindu right-wing activists have sort of made, you know, pilgrimages of sort there. There is some kind of makeshift temple. Uh, So you had this group of very strident, you know, right-wing nationalists in a train coming back from Ayodhya. They were at this station. And someone set the train ablaze. And in this particular bogey, there were 58 of these activists who died. Uh, now, you know, the uh, at that point of time, the information was that this had been done by Muslims. Uh, since then, you know, the circumstances of the case are murky. There's been, you know, some uh, confusion about, uh, you know, was the train set a fire from within, outside? There have also been some accusations, though not much evidence made by members of the BJP and former groups of Patel's, for instance, an important, very powerful caste group in Gujarat, who have said that this was engineered by the BJP itself so that Modi could come to power. And Modi stood accused of uh, doing nothing deliberately and letting Hindu mobs run riot and retaliation, who then went on a killing spree. I think about, I want to say, 2,000 Muslims were killed in the weeks that followed. Uh, set ablaze, and so on, and Modi was you know on the cover of every Indian magazine as a kind of in some ways the very antithesis of Indian secularism representing a new kind of law. Uh, you know, there were cases against him initiated by some activists, he was denied a visa to go to the u s mm. but from there on, he's had a kind of meteoric rise. He's a very, very canny political operator. he's always had his eye on the national stage and from being practically thrown out of the BJP by then Prime Minister Raj he staged this you know, remarkable comeback. And I think in part what Modi did, which was very smart, was that uh, there is a long tradition of Indian middle classes and elites obsessing about development, which actually uh, ironically goes back to Nehru, who in some ways is Modi's intimate enemy. Uh, and Modi played exactly that card. Uh, By, you know, essentially uh, portraying himself as an efficient, uh, you know, to the point of being ruthless, corruption-free, austere, puritanical leader focused on, uh, you know, modernizing India and the antithesis of a kind of, uh, you know, enervated, corrupt, uh, tired, you know, dynastic Congress. Uh, so that's, to me, been a kind of remarkable story. I'll mention two other things. One is you know, of interest to me, which is that uh, starting in the 90s or even earlier, the BJP has been very, very proactive in using, uh, in, in A, cultivating a diasporic community of Indians, who've become more and more important. Uh, and also, they've been first movers in the internet space, and they used social media and the internet with superb effectiveness in the lead up to 2014. Uh, as far as Modi's own politics are concerned, there's an essay freely available online uh, in the magazine Seminar by again Ashish Nandi, who had mentioned, who speaks of meet, meeting Modi and, uh, you know, I think the 80s maybe, and talks of when I think he was already chief minister. And he says that, uh, you know, he was uh, 80s or 90s. And he says that 90s, I think, yeah, it's a 98 piece. He says he was uh, shaken, thoroughly shaken in a way he's been seldom, uh, affected before, because he said Modi exhibited all the signs of a clinical sociopath, that he was able to project every kind of vileness onto Muslims and blame them for everything. And, you know, for a man like this, to he, he basically was of a mindset where, you know, in his mind, Muslims were less than human. And it's not an accident that since he's come to power, you know, there are certain very clear signs he's given about uh, you know, his understanding of Islam and Muslims in India, but it's also been taken tacitly as a kind of sanction by these groups of Hindu right-wing thugs to engage in, you know, lynchings against Muslims. Uh And a number of Muslims who have been lynched, they uh you know, the, the families are still seeking justice. There's one case of, uh, I think, a, you know, a person who led a lynching son of a BJP leader just being given bail mm. while uh, the family is still kind of languishing. Uh, so modi that's where he is and since he's uh but you know the sheen has begin begun to fade a little bit the rumor this is rumor but the rumor is that the amount of money that the political class gave the bjp uh was just staggering in the 2014 election and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that and modi may not be personally corrupt but you know his administration has been tainted by some recent scandals uh plus you know he is also in some ways fond of the good life he has apparently these mushrooms which cost a fortune for his good health, and, you know, he loves dressing up. And I think this week we've seen the fact that, you know, he is someone who's starstruck, susceptible to flattery, tells us something about his kind of vaingloriousness and pomposity, where, you know, he's thrilled that uh, these different Bollywood stars, including has-beens, are congratulating him, and on Twitter he's congratulating them back. So uh, that, I think, is a sort of, uh, you know, uh, a picture I would paint of Modi.
0: Hmm. I talking about Modi's Twitter usage, um, I usually don't judge people for who they follow or don't follow on Twitter. Um, But um, Modi, unlike Trump, he doesn't tend to tweet actual nonsense himself. But he follows an inordinate number of extremely nasty people. You know, people, I I mean, I'm not talking about people you might disagree with. Politically, I'm talking about people who are tweeting death and rape threats at people all day long.
1: Um, oh yes, absolutely. so many of them yeah. are I mean, followed
0: you know. by Modi. I, it's uh, it's quite extraordinary.
1: Oh, oh, it's complete. You know, it's complete signaling because Modi knows that this too is part of his base. And uh, you know, the the head of the BJP IT said, who's a nasty piece of work himself, a man called Amit Malviya. I mean, you know, if 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 I were to think of like you know someone I couldn't respect any less. I mean, it is not conceivably conceivably possible for me to respect a few people less than, than I do. Uh, Amit Shah, Modi himself, and this man, Amit Malviya, uh, he, they're all of a piece. Uh, so he came up with some, you know, silly excuse or pointless excuse about how, oh, well, you know, the prime minister follows a range of people and he just likes to see their views. And that's complete nonsense, because in this case, it's very much a signal about him following these these people, precisely because they are vile and absolutely filthy. Uh, and this is something that's, you know, it's got international attention, the fact that Modi follows this riffraff, But it is it is a sign of, you know, the kind of stuff that impresses him. And I suspect uh, his own politics may well have to do with this.
2: Rohini? Yeah, I think the, um, I mean, a lot of the people who he follows also put his name up, uh, saying that followed by the Prime Minister and followed by Mr. Modi. So it is it is an encouragement to them. Some of these people he has even met in uh, events, uh, kind of celebrations, and giving them awards, um, you know, or just shaking their hand for them, it's an award. Um, uh, but he, they, there has been, they have they have actually shown a lot of the BJP and Modi himself have shown respect, actually, for a lot of uh, these, uh, not, they're not just trolls, they are inciting violence and they are attacking people, uh, putting addresses of people up online. Uh, they are really dangerous people um, and they are encouraged by uh, by modi uh, in 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 lots of other ways so i, I think the there has been uh, a disturbing when when modi was campaigning to be prime uh, prime minister i mean when bjp was campaigning with uh, modi as its prime ministerial candidate uh, it was there was a disturbing uh, amount number of people who were very willing to forget the 2002 uh, riots and, and, you know, Modi's role in it, uh, you know, and there are, there are selected bits from the, you know, court cases and from, uh, from history that the BJP and Modi himself are very clever at using, like the term clean chit for, for a lot of the cases in which he was named, um, there were also differences among people fighting these cases. About you know, it is hard to, to, to uh, a lot of the evidence was gone. Uh, fires seem to have uh, erased a lot of the uh, you know back and forth between between uh, policemen. Uh, a lot, uh, you know, and and there are there, there are several cases that keep coming up that show the hand of Modi and Amit Shah, his very close associate. Uh, who's a BJP president now, uh, who's also a Gujarat politician. And none of this seems to have uh, even disturbed uh, a lot A lot of people who would otherwise call themselves secular, very willing to set this aside, uh, this violent past, for a very uh, golden picture of uh, development, uh, which is also problematic uh, in terms of the policy that the BJP has been pushing, but quite more similar to what the Congress also was pushing. And yeah, so that, and there have been many of those people, public intellectuals uh, also who have made the turn back after a few years uh, to say that, uh, you know, that they have changed their mind. Uh, and it's deeply disturbing that uh, the changing of minds has also happened when the when all the things that Modi has promised he would do, uh, like, you know, he's going to... Uh, Eradicate eradicate poverty is something that every politician says, but these people were saying numbers, and people believed that they these that Modi would do it. Uh, there is also uh, something where he says he's been going to lots of countries abroad, uh, and he meets and hugs people from Mark Zuckerberg to you know uh, uh, to a French uh, president. He just hugs everyone, and now and, and and just his visits seem to make people just proud that you know he's taking India. Uh, he's improving india's name across the across the world i i found for i i just can't understand how any of this is relevant to what is happening within india uh, which um i for which you know those people who have gone back to criticizing him from feeling that he was okay are criticizing his development policy but there is still a large silence about the his his kind of violent past uh, which none of his 56 inch chest or none of his um, you know, praise of uh, uh, none of his claims of having given India a great name abroad can it um, I also, uh,
0: could you talk a little bit about Yogi Adityanath who is uh, probably my least
2: favorite uh, Indian
0: um.
2: <laughs> um. Well, We should just keep naming them now uh, I, I, I'll talk about Yogi Adityanath because also I had the great misfortune of meeting him in 2009 uh, when I went to interview him uh, uh, and I, I worked in an investigative magazine and uh, all I saw him as at the time when I went to visit him was just, you know, a sort of a kind of rabble rouser uh, who just said, you know, politically incorrect things. But the experience I had actually visiting him and talking to him chills me to, to till today. Uh, he runs so Yogi Adityanath. The name that's not his real name. Um, Yogi Yogi Adityanath is uh, sort of a guru of this Goraknath uh, ashram. Oh, in, I did. Uh, I didn't know that. The um, yeah. Uh, so the, I mean, again, the word ashram is not. Uh, it, it it might conjure up, conjure up the image of you know people meditating and things, but this is a kind of religious ashram where people might be meditating, yeah. But they are also talking about how to save Hinduism, and it's a, it's a very old ashram, uh, and uh, it's it has uh, Adityanath is actually the protege of somebody who uh, uh, who used to ha- who has links to the Babi Masjid. He led the move uh, towards it uh, through the demolition. And also, he is someone, uh, and and that person used to be a member of the Hindu Mahasabha, which was an extreme uh, strain of the RSS, and now and then merged with the BJP later on. Uh, this is the this is the group to which uh, Gandhi's assassin belonged, uh, uh, and this is this is somebody. So uh, Yogi Adityanath is, uh, I don't think we need to even listen to him for ten seconds to know what his beliefs are. Uh, he runs this this uh, ashram, and he's uh, actually a five-time parliamentarian. He's won five times from that uh, constituency and gone into parliament. Uh, and now him becoming chief minister uh, is chilling because he has had such a past of anti-Muslim of anti-Muslim violence. Uh, and I and I mean I actually witnessed him go through a Muslim majority. Um, area. I mean, there are more 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 people living there were Muslim. This is a place called Azamgarh, and he was he was screaming that he will take. You know, this was a supposedly an election campaign, and he was saying, uh, "You you people, if if one of you has, uh, if if one of my Hindus is attacked, then hundred of you, a hundred of your women will be." And then he lets the sentence go halfway. It just this is the kind of. This is the kind of chilling thing he does, and he's doing this on a microphone, uh, going through uh, Muslim area. And this was uh, he. This was what he has taught to a group called the Hindu Yuva Vahini, which he has created, which is of kind of youth that uh, have swords. I I don't know what other kinds of weapons. I saw swords, Uh, and they uh, are also the people who are now supposedly going to protect women on the streets. After he became chief minister, this is his. He says they are going to be more dedicated than the police of the state, and this is a man. What does he mean by protect women in that context? Uh, from 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 uh, Muslims and from any anybody from anyone they think shouldn't be shouldn't be around them, of course. Uh, and uh, you know, this is they uh, think uh, this is this is part of. You know, I don't even want to get into that, but this is part of the way in which a lot of, I mean, he sees women as property. Uh, as do many of these young men, uh, and uh, this he also leads a group of people that are doing kind of purification drives where you get, yeah, uh, you know, he believes that he he believes in converting people from Christianity and Islam to Islam, not Muslims as much, but Christians back to Hinduism. Uh, is a humiliating kind of ritual which I saw where they kind of pour. Uh, cow urine and things on your head, and they do kinds of puja uh it was i mean cow urine is part of uh, a lot of Hindu rituals but this was this is particularly this one is particularly humiliating uh, where because they say all all Muslims and all Christians were originally Hindu so all sorts of things um he 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 he's very powerful very influential in the area uh he's been arrested several times he has he's incited so many communal so much communal violence uh and you know and soon after he came to power he passed uh a resolution in in the assembly in uh, that all political uh cases will be removed and of course that removed four of his own cases just you just cancel mm. uh, sorry I just wanted to add that this is a person who uh, who actually uh, i mean there is a lot of uh, political analysts feel that uh, he was installed by the. Uh, I mean, this was someone who was pushed by the RSS as as somebody who would not mince words, which even Modi does sometimes, uh, and that he will do. Uh, he will present the extreme uh, uh, strain of Hindu Hindutva, uh, the extreme extreme strain of Hindutva, uh, without. Uh, Without any, uh, you know, without really mincing any words, and which he's doing, uh, he also uh, particularly uh, got all. He said that illegal. I mean, you, Uttar Pradesh al- already had a law against cow slaughter, uh, which is you can't you can't you can't eat beef, you can't kill a cow in the state. Many states in India have that, and uh, but he he kind of made it even uh, even tougher on people who who run butcheries and things legally by saying that illegal butcheries uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm saying butcheries, but the word slaughterhouse itself uh, is something I think is a political word. Um, So illegal butcheries that all illegal butcheries should be closed. That was one of his laws, one of his uh, decrees. And uh, that was just uh, an excuse to Harris. And and, uh, because a lot of the butcheries are run by uh, either, uh, Dalits or by Muslims, so this is a way to harass them, even if they had papers legal it's a very complex procedure to get these licenses. He also limited the number of licenses that can go out uh, yeah, so very good at causing havoc all his life
0: yes i've seen the I've seen the footage I think that footage went right round the world um, I mean I was watching from uh, the Parsi bag in Bombay, but um people were commenting to me from everywhere in the world about it um, of young men groups of young men in trucks are uh, driving around armed with sticks getting down and beating up couples um uh stopping uh trucks of people who were supposedly transporting beef um dragging the drivers out beating them to a pulp leaving them for dead uh and mostly in uttar pradesh where this was happening yeah. to I, complete silence from Modi I, complete I, radio silence
2: um yeah so there's there is a lot of people there are people within the BJP also that fit these two as competitors in what the what their uh, the kind of messaging that the BJP wants um and here is Modi who is in every way has enabled a lot of this kind of violence but will Maintain a clean image himself, while uh, someone like Yogi Adityanath is like a sort of um, Hindu jihadi leader, mm-hmm. sort of thing. Like where you know he's lay down, but but he he has benefited so much from it. Um, but at at the same time, I shouldn't forget to mention that a lot of people do see him as a yogi, as I witnessed there. Um, if I had not gone to the ashram, I don't think I'd have understood the the, the, the um, kind of extent of respect that a lot of people have for him as well. Um, it's a mix of respect and um, I wouldn't say fear, but uh, a fascination for the kind of power he wields with such a strong hand. Uh, people people are, uh, you know, th- the kind of bodyguards that he had and the kind of uh, people that are just milling around that ashram. Women, men, uh, there is a lot of um, a strong feeling that here is a man who is really defending uh, Hinduism, which, of course, as Modi, he also, be, he, I mean, everyone, this is a kind of a racist belief of the of Hinduism being under threat uh, by Muslims. So this is something that they all believe in different range in a different range of uh, to different effects. But this man is someone they feel is protecting that uh, protecting Hinduism. So there is there are a lot of people who believe
1: it. it's that. kind of uh, ironic that India's. Uh six or seven most prominent advocates and practitioners of yoga all have, you know, some taint of murder or some serious crime charges. against. <laughs> I mean, I was, you know, my mother was just mentioning this, that she said, you know, one of the things that yoga is supposed to do is kind of lead to enlightenment or make you peaceful or calm. But she says, look at these people. I mean, there's Yogi, there's Modi himself, who's, you know, advertised International Yoga Day. There's this Sadhguru uh, whose wife uh, wife allegedly died in mysterious circumstances. Uh, Baba Ramdev's partner, his business partner was poisoned and a book which kind of mentioned that was, you know, the BJP government managed to get it quashed. And uh, there's this guy, Bapu Asaram, who I think is in jail for rape and murder. And uh, Sri Sri is probably the only guy who doesn't have a murder charge, but his followers completely devastated the Yamuna plane. So, I mean, I don't think... Hindu government is the best uh, or Hindu government is the best advertisement for yoga.
2: Yes. Yeah, so I just wanted to say that there is actually a book and I will t- find the link and send it to you but there is a book that looks into this, the history the, to going back to the history of how yoga is practiced and even things like asana and the and the kind of holding of postures and all of that uh, which did not exist before uh, some of, I, I mean there is there is some history that traces it to the uh, insecurity of uh, that that hinduism started to exhibit um and an imitation of the kind of aerobics and physical strength that they wanted to have which is to to uh, to rival um you know the western idea of what is good health and power physical power uh, and some of those which we practice today uh, like the warrior pose and all of that did not exist before Bef- by before i mean uh, you know hundreds uh, hundreds of years ago, where uh, a lot the way yoga is practiced with this flow and vipass- uh, uh, vinyasa and all of that did not exist before. It is the influence of of the West and of the uh, of of growing insecurity among uh, Hindu groups that used to propagate yoga that gives it the form it is today. Mm.
0: That's very interesting. I look forward to seeing that. Thank you. I i I think that yogi. I mean, to me, it's interesting because uh, yogi is the most extreme religious zealot that I have seen in government in any de- democracy and I think this leads maybe um, into the question of Indian secularism um, because India officially is a secular country but so many uh, so many aspects of Indian law and indian culture are not in any way secularist so for example you have different marriage laws for different communities there is a parsi marriage law for example and you also have religion is absolutely omnipresent and you have an anti-blasphemy law on the books uh in india 295a is that the number of the um is that the number in the legal
1: code uh, yeah, it's a section two. There's section 153A and section 295A, which are yes, uh, criticism of religion or yes,
0: is that insulting religious sentiments? Um, 295A yeah,
1: or creating this, creating discord between groups, and they're applied they're applied sort of very very widely and uh, loosely. Yes,
0: I mean insulting religious sentiments basically sounds like a blasphemy law, and I think that you know even when I was applying for my Indian visa, there was a drop-down selection box where you could pick your religion, and the options were Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, Christian, Jain, Buddhist, or Zoroastrian. Uh, There was no none option. (laughs) Um, So um, I I wondered if you wanted to say something about that, about the non-secularity of nominal... a nominally secular country?
1: Well, I, you know, I, uh, so I'll start by saying that there's a couple of things. One is that I think Indian secularism is, uh, is genuine and real. Uh, The second point I'll make is that it doesn't necessarily follow the same definition or the logic of the West. And I don't mean to resort to an Indian exceptionalism out here, but uh, you know, what perhaps gives Indian secularism its staying power, it's been, you know, compromised, it's battered, bruised right now. Uh, but I think it is a real social fact, so to speak. And I think what gives it its staying power is also what in some ways uh, renders it vulnerable, which is that uh, secularism is not defined as, in the Indian case, as the separation of religion and state. Uh, rather, it's defined as a kind of, um, you know, uh I would say either an equidistance or an equal recognition of all religions. Uh, so that's why you know, growing up in India, school was wonderful because you know you got every religious holiday. I mean, I got hmm. more I got more days off for Christian holidays in India than I do in in, in a post-Christian secular society like the U.S. That's
0: now, that's
1: definitely an advantage. Um, <laughs> and especially when you're in school. But the thing is that there is no perfect secularism anywhere, right? It's, you know, as an ideal doctrine. I mean, uh, uh, and, and uh, you know, this professor at Emory Law School, John, Witter, who's written a wonderful piece saying, there is no real war between church and state. Uh, the, the U.S. is heavily, heavily Christian in all kinds of ways. I mean, or if you just look at the history of, uh, you, know, m- you know, just the secularization of modern life, uh, I think there is, in many ways, secularism is, is both, uh, you know, encumbered by and also informed by a kind of Christian heritage, uh, so much so that Gayatri Spivak will say that secularism. I think she's a very interesting phrase, where she says secularism is laundered Christianity. Uh, now, you know, we have Sunday as a holiday, for instance. That's one example. But uh, you know, even if we act, even if we accept that the West, and I think it has sort of meaningfully managed to to separate the sphere of private life from the you know uh, public life from religion in certain ways. Uh, France, which is secular, is heavily, heavily Catholic. Uh, so, in you know, whether it's Swedish secularism, whether it's French, whether it's American, in every one of these societies, the numerically dominant faith or the culturally dominant group has had certain advantages. So, in that, India is is not exceptional. Now, one of the ways in which secularism is defined in India is precisely through the you know kinds of. Uh, uh the preservation of the kinds of laws you mentioned and it may seem to be a contradiction but i think uh, you know the history of those personal laws actually goes back to the establishment of uh, british courts of justice and uh, you know one so a quick sort of point about indian history that uh, you know indian uh, in india's history when you had rulers from different religious communities Uh, you could have a Muslim ruler who had Hindus in his army uh, and you could have a Hindu ruler who had, you know, Muslims in their army. This was sort of very common. Uh, One of the sort of practices in the subcontinent was uh, there were destruction of places of worship by members of another faith, no question. Uh, You know, there were temples that were destroyed by Muslim rulers. There were, you know, Buddhist places of worship that were destroyed by Hindus. Uh, uh, But along with that, there was also the custom of rulers not interfering in the religious customs and practices of communities. Now, when the British codified law, uh, the challenge, essentially, is William Jones, the challenge in the 18th century onwards was, on the one hand, creating codified systems of law, and on the other hand, also telling each community that we will not interfere with your religious customs. And I don't want to romanticize these sort of religious customs or practices, uh, but these religious customs and practices encompass things like marriage, uh, inheritance, and so on. So that's basically the kind of background to it. And one of the things that had happened, I think, with the specter of the partition of India is essentially if, Minorities had to be assured that they would be safe in India was a commitment that the state, secular as it would be, would not interfere in the customs of these groups. Uh, so in that sense, it's very interesting that the post-colonial state sort of behaved in the way traditional rulers had and to some extent also behaved in the way the its colonial predecessor had. Uh, so that's actually the kind of backdrop. Now, one of the good, uh, insightful criticisms of Indian secularism made by a professor of philosophy, Akeel uh, Bilgrami, philosophy, I think, at Columbia, it's an essay he wrote a long time ago, is that he says Indian secularism was what he calls a holding process, which is that, uh, you know, it kept things in check, but his point is that it didn't really develop any substantive legitimacy. Uh, You know, that's an interesting point i don't think that there is anything that makes indians innately secular more secular than people of other world uh, communities I, I, you know i think that's a kind of self congratulatory exceptionalist gesture uh, but i do think that if you think of secularism in a way as you know uh, consonant with traditions of syncretism uh, of shared practices of some degree of you know coexistence even with the histories of uh, violence uh, it doesn't mean that You know, those histories can't exist with prejudice, but it does mean that there is some kind of basis for what we call Indian secularism. And, you know, to me, again, uh, I don't think if you look at the recent uh, string of losses that the BJP suffered in in uh, state elections, uh, I don't think secularism as in the Indian sense is the only cause of it. Uh, You know, there were farmer grievances. There was, you know, people seeing the BJP as promising too much, not delivering anything. But I do think that there was one element was at least that, you know, the BJP had kind of gone too far in in these religious divides because I think there kind of comes a point where people just want to kind of get on with their lives. And, um, you know, I'll just end with uh, an interesting statement by a critic of secularism, Ashish Nandi, I keep going back to him. Uh, He's actually a critic of secularism, but there's a way in which you can read him as actually endorsing Indian secularism. And he says that in India, the gods behave badly. What does he mean by that? He says that the gods don't stick to where they're supposed to be. The gods in your neighbor's house will cross over and come into your house, which means that eventually you will follow practices uh, of from Islam or Christianity. And you see this, you know, in the roads in Bombay. You'll see that there'll be a shrine with Mother Mary and it'll have marigolds in it. Uh, which you associate with Hinduism. And anyone going by, whether they're Hindu, Christian, Muslim, uh, you know, will just maybe stop for a minute and pray. And you see, you know, on the roadside, similar shrines to uh, Hindu deities as well. Or you will see that there'll be a particular dargah where, uh, you know, or a tomb of a Sufi saint. And you will have Hindus and Muslims going and praying there.
0: How do you see Hindu nationalism developing in the future? Do you think that this is a tendency that is going to continue and strengthen or not? And if not, um, what are the best ways of combating this? And what are the best ways of making people aware of this and of helping to combat this from outside India?
2: I mean, one of the heartening things that has been happening is where some of these leaders of uh, Hindu sentiment uh, people have started making fun of them a little bit, even those who may be following them. And this I take as a really heartening um, <laughs> sort of change. Uh, people were taking some of these uh, leaders far too seriously. Yes, we should be taking them seriously in terms of the actions that they do, but in terms of leaders, in terms of, I mean, every every politician should be made fun of. And when they, I mean, I think we had lost that for some years and Uh, There is wit and uh, humor in a lot of Indian voters and, you know, just people who live in India. And I'm so glad that some of that is coming back. A lot of uh, movements have already started to question and challenge fearlessly a lot of what uh, the Modi-led government is doing and a lot of what BJP governments, uh, state governments are doing across the country. And this is taking the form of Dalit assertion among young men and women. It is taking the form of new political alliances that are happening in some states like Uttar Pradesh, where two extremely warring and equally, you know, uh, they have completely opposite vote banks. Uh, One is uh, Mayawati, who is traditionally a Dalit leader, Although she has quoted Brahmins and other upper castes before, uh, and the other who have actually caused her physical harm, uh, Samajwati Party. These alliances are forming because there is a strong sense of having to remove the BJP and what it represents. Why a lot of these electoral alliances and all of that have something to do with power because they do fear how deeply the BJP is able to uh, extend its networks. Uh, there is there is also among civil society and among groups that, uh, like like I mentioned, these Dalit groups, like uh, you know, you, uh, women uh, are strongly asserting themselves in 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 the spheres of temples, like in the Sabri in the south, where they are pushing for entry into a, into a. Uh, I mean, it, it is a it is a specific case of a specific temple in a specific which follows a, a specific practice, but it is becoming uh, more emblematic of a bigger fight against uh, kind of what do you say Brahminical patriarchy, which is like hashtag on Twitter. So you have you have this strong need to remove the BJP, but uh, as I see it, there are a lot of things happening at the same time and it is in, and, and, and some groups are that are allying have been traditional enemies and this is good, but I don't think we can only see it as a political challenge. Uh, socially, a lot of uh, what was not to be said in in public uh, or to your family member or to your friend is being said very easily. A lot of, you know, uh, inequality, unemployment, poverty is, is being explained away very simply as uh, through identity politics. A lot of this is something that uh, groups that are not the BJP... Uh, are not addressing seriously uh, whether even I'm not just talking about politicians but a lot of uh, activists themselves uh, a lot of it is being brushed under uh, you know communalist nationalist politics but actually communalism and nationalist politics but actually there is there is more that should be addressed without all of us kind of seeing saffron all the time and and that work is happening but I I, I hope that work is stronger because that is when a lot of this insecurity, a lot of the, a, a lot of the unrest is actually going to be addressed. And those are the things that the BJP is sidelining. Those are the things that the BJP, really, like there are, as uh, Rohit mentioned, and you know, I, I I met these farmers that were that all came to Delhi, uh, you know, lakhs of them, and they uh, these these were people talking about. Climate change. They were talking about uh, water resource. They were talking about land acquisition. Uh, all of these are long-term problems, and that didn't appear only when the BJP came. So it's great that these issues are getting focused on, uh, but not all the answers will come from just the removal of the BJP.
1: Yeah, I think Rohini has, you know, hit the nail on the head. So I'll just add a few other things. I, I agree with, uh, you know, pretty much everything Rohini said. Uh, you know, it's it's very interesting. Uh, that, you know, she mentioned that people are now criticizing, satirizing the government. One of the things I've noticed through, you know, my Twitter account and otherwise is that a lot of people don't mind you criticizing Modi directly, but the one thing his fans called bhaks and the, you know, right-wing trolls absolutely cannot stand is people mocking him. Uh, Somehow that really, really gets to him. And I think we are seeing more of that. So in some ways that, you know, Sheen has kind of disappeared of Modi. Uh, and secondly, yes, I think that, you know, the, it's not as if the Congress has completely clean hands when it comes to communalism. Uh, to me, one of the things that's happened, which is very alarming, is that, uh, and I wrote a piece about this some time ago, is that in one sense, the BJP has already won. When you have, uh, you know, the new government in Madhya Pradesh, the Congress government talking about protecting cows, when you have Rahul Gandhi out to prove his Hindu credentials and, you know, going to temples, that's where I feel that, you know, it, this is something that earlier, for instance, Congress leaders, non-BJP, non hindu right leaders didn't need to do. So uh, this kind of banal, uh, you know, communalist communalization of politics, a new kind of dimension has crept in. Uh, how that will be reversed, I don't know. But I think a lot of what we see has to also do with, you know, massive unemployment, restless youth, uh, uh, just living conditions, frustration. Uh, I think those, you know, abiding social issues, uh, if, if there's a sense in which, you know, we can have successful projects that, that address those. Uh, and, and I don't mean to sort of parrot the standard Indian discourse on, you know, development and with the specter of a utopia ahead. Uh, but really, you know, solutions that in some ways are very sort of context specific, uh, that actually address kind of local needs. Um, so I think my sense is that, you know, we, it may take some years, but maybe we are at a very interesting moment with civil society in India. And if, um, they can be the kind of, you know, social change and India has seen it or social movement, some kind of gra- grassroots social movement, uh, or several initiatives uh, of the kind that Rohini was talking about. I think, uh, maybe some of these, you know, um, Hindu majoritarian tendencies will be will be dialed back, but uh, but there will be some degree of a struggle. It's not going to happen, you know, easily.
0: Do either of you feel that you have something that you want to say that you haven't had a chance to voice?
2: I just remembered actually that I did not. I forgot to uh, critique critique my fellows, which is in the media. <laughs> it's just um, it it's, it has been a ridiculous time for the media where so much of it. Has allowed, uh, especially this government, to say and do a lot without any questioning. This is one of the most silent governments in terms of it not responding to press questions. The and Modi has not held a press conference since he came to power, uh, which prime, Min- prime ministers do on and off, and even Trump does. Uh, he does not take questions written, and he there, there are. Um, the odd, I think, two or three uh, scripted interviews that he has done with pli- what pliable is not a nice word now. Apparently, you'll see the history on Twitter. Uh, some very friendly journalists who ask him things like, uh, "Oh, how do you work for 18 hours a day? Oh, how do you wake up at 3 a.m.? Um, you know, where do you get this energy from?" It is disgusting. There are journalists. There is a journalist, um, I mean, when I think in Times Now, I think it started, Or there's Arnab Goswami uh, and he, I think it was Times Now or the channel he runs now, Republic, where he started, it was a debate on why one should not say Bharat mata ki jai. And the whole debate was started by looking at his panelists, including people who are critical of this statement, which is a way considered uh, and has a history with the RSS.
0: Um, can you just translate that statement for, for listeners?
2: Glory be to Mother India. This Mother India figure is, is like this, uh, it's in the shape of the Indian uh, uh, you know, subcontinent, is a, like a woman holding a flag, and often a woman in a sari holding a flag, and she's considered Mother India, and she's holding this flag, which is often uh, in a lot of the picturization, the artist's flag, uh, a saffron sort of flag, and not the Indian flag. And sometimes that is replaced with the Indian flag. And there is a history of criticism of this, and um, some people don't like to say it. So there was this uh, uh, there was this um, uh, anchor who TV anchor who says I have all my guests with me from across uh, you know different opinions and let us all start the show by saying Bharat Mata Ki Jai Yugo. It was re- hilarious. This is <laughs> this is the sort of um, uh, it, you know it, it ridiculous. Uh, Servile behavior from a lot of the media, and uh, you know some may not be th- this extreme, but some are uh, quite apologi- uh Have become apologists, and um, I, I, I don't. I, I see some people believe that they will flip back to a different government uh, to sort of you know, doing lip service to that kind of government, uh, but I don't. I don't know, uh, and I don't think that gives me much hope either.
0: Rohit, did you have anything else that you feel you want to get in before we end the podcast?
1: Yeah, just a couple of things. First, again, echoing what Rohini is saying, that you know, on my Twitter account and my articles have been critical of the media. Yeah, the psycho has been, you know, astonishing. It's been an emergency-like situation, as far as I'm concerned, and and that has to do with the fact that the Modi government is enormously vindictive and and, you know vicious, and they do monitor, uh, you know, what's said about them. They've uh, you know, they've gone after the one channel, NDTV, which was somewhat critical of them. And then NDTV also kind of, you know, fell in line. Um, so you've got, you know, some outposts, uh, I'd say, of uh, of media integrity still there and a lot of very good, fine journalists. I don't want to demonize the community. Uh, but I really, you know, hope that with all the numbers of channels we have, etc., that, um, you know, there's some kind of minimal ethical integrity that 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 is maintained we move towards that uh, the second thing is that yeah I mean if you take the violence away from the Hindu right they also provide a good deal of entertainment there's a lot of crackpottery about you know science uh, that they were ancient ancient Indians uh, Hindus who, you know had the internet and telepathy and all uh, so my my hope is that in an ideal world I would like to see a Hindu right that uh, doesn't engage in violence or communalization uh, it doesn't feed this junk to students in textbooks or at conferences but uh, i hope they keep entertaining us so i just
0: yes I, I i follow Subramanian uh swami just for the entertainment value so this guy who i think he has a degree from yale uh law degree i haven't looked that up actually he has a there law degree many,
2: some quite there are many many more of them many,
0: many oh yes yes he's just an example because he's someone quite prominent within the government and who is well educated and he seriously believes, I mean, not as a sort of joke, but in all seriousness, he believes, for example, that the ancient Hindus had plastic surgery. Um, and you can tell this because Ganesh has a an elephant's head. And he also believes that ancient Hindus went to space. They had space travel. And they traveled in these swan-shaped, um, they look like giant flying gondolas called pushback V-man. Um, and uh, I'm actually quite fascinated by the pushback V-man myth. Uh, it's one of my favorite things in Hinduism. But uh, they are taking this act seriously, including people who are involved in education in India, are taking all kinds of complete nonsense seriously.
1: Well, i give them give them the uh, lamp surgery in part because there is the ancient Indian physician Sushruta who has a technique for a nose graft. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, anesh is completely absurd. The Pushpak Raman is absurd. And of course, the argument always is that all this wonderful scientific knowledge uh, got lost because of Muslim invasions, right? It always comes back to Muslims. Uh, but, you know, and, and therefore it, it can't be revived. And, you know, maybe if we had the Pushpak Raman, then the Bodhi government would need to buy the 36 uh, Rafale or Rafale, I don't know how it's pronounced, aircraft that, at exorbitant
0: rates. There's a, um, an episode of Goodness Gracious Me. I don't know if you've ever seen that old British series in which the uncle is uh, um, holding forth about how all famous scientists and artists throughout hind- history were actually Indian. Um, when I hear the Hindu right talking about science and art and historical things, it always reminds me of that episode, which I'll link to in the show notes. And um, where everyone from Michelangelo to Einstein was actually Indian.
1: Yeah, it's an, it's an anxiety about, I think, um, the universalism of Hindu identity. And it's interesting that in the era of globalization, the anxiety kind of comes back, manifold, mm-hmm. I guess.
0: Mm. Yes. Well, thank you both very much. Uh, where can people find you and your writings? I will add it to the show notes, but maybe you'd like to also uh, tell them. Uh, Rohit?
1: Oh, uh, you know, I just... Uh, sort of post them off and on on twitter but it's a it's a good point i i've got um, you know several dozen articles now that i've written but they're all kind of scattered but maybe that's incentive for me to you know do a website or put them in one place yes but, absolutely and don't you have a blog i believe you have I, a blog. I, I used to but i don't you know keep it uh, active anymore we just have a kind of website where we collect, you know, we just sort of archive of our podcast, but we're basically on SoundCloud for the podcast. Uh, it's uh, soundcloud.com, India Explained. It can be accessed on uh, TuneIn, Stitcher, iTunes, um, and Audio Boom as well.
2: Great, thank you. And Rohini? Uh, I post my articles online on Twitter. You can follow me on Rohini, uh, it's underscore Mohan. Great. Thank you. Thank you both very much.
1: Thanks.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant. Edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO... We hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ario and 2 T are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ario, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating. Write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.